This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Well, today we're back in the studio together after a bit of a break, but no time for Chit Chat Tegan, jam-packed show. Yes, I'm going to be talking about a projected rise in skin cancer cases, but who's going to treat them? And putting stroke diagnosis and treatment on the road, quite literally. And I'll be speaking to someone about the curious link between mental health and the immune system. But before that, Tegan, you have heard a little bit about monkeypox. It seems inescapable at the moment. And I, honestly, I've got to hand it to whoever's naming diseases these days. They're definitely attention-grabbing. Well, it's not a new disease. It's endemic in Western Central Africa. But in the last two or three weeks, it's being reported in non-endemic countries, including Australia. One of the few Australian researchers who has published on monkeypox is Professor Raina McIntyre, who heads the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back to the Health Report, Raina. Good evening, Norman. So what is monkeypox? It's kind of a misnomer, isn't it? Uh, yes, because the um, natural host is actually rodents and it's endemic in parts of Africa, particularly Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, I was first, first identified in the 1950s, but the first human case occurred in 1970, and there were really very, very small outbreaks in the last really 30, 40 years until 2017 when we started seeing these growing outbreaks in Nigeria and Democratic Republic of Congo and um, you know, started seeing travel imported cases popping up in the UK, in Singapore, in Israel since 2018, and now this outbreak. And, in fact, there was an outbreak much earlier in the United States that was from imported rodents from, as pets and spread to yes. prairie, prairie dogs. That's right, in 2003, and mo those were all um, infections from animals to humans. Um, not human-to-human -human transmission. So before we get to the spread into non-endemic countries, why are the, why the resurgence in Af West Africa and Central Africa? So monkeypox is uh, in a group of viruses called autopox viruses, of which there are a number. Most are animal viruses, and smallpox is one of those viruses. Um, variola is a virus that causes smallpox, and that was a virus that only infected humans, didn't infect animals. So... Um, we, the last smallpox was declared eradicated in 1980 and the last mass vaccination programs were ceased in the 1970s and the smallpox vaccine protects against um, many of the orthopox viruses including monkeypox. So there's two things that have gone on since the 40 years have passed since eradication. One is we've got fewer and fewer people who've been vaccinated um, uh, really people over 50 may have been vaccinated and people under 50 generally aren't. And also there's been waning immunity likely from the vaccine. So the older people who've had a vaccine, um, there's a degree of waning of immunity. So those two things have combined to result in more susceptibility to orthopox viruses. And there's a theory that the monkeypox is emerging, re-emerging because it's... Um, able to because because there isn't enough immunity and more exposure um, to animals through deforestation is the other theory yeah and uh different different practices in terms of agriculture and urban living etc have all contributed but the biggest factor is the lack of relative lack of immunity to autopox viruses and, this, and the, the west african one which is the one that seems to have spread internationally is less virulent than the central african one 
That's right, yeah. It's got about a 1% case fatality rate, which is similar to SARS-CoV-2, um, whereas the other one, the Congo Basin clade, has um, a 10% case fatality rate. Um, but, however, the West African clade is thought to have a fatality in the, in the last few years of about 3 3 to 4% in West Africa. How does it affect people? So they get a fever and malaise, feeling generally unwell. You can get swollen lymph nodes and then a rash. That's most commonly on the face. Um, almost every person who's infected will get it on the face, uh, followed by the palms and soles, uh, palms of the hand, soles of the feet. And then about 30% of people can get a genital rash um, and you can get a rash all over the body. It's their kind of hard... Um, blistering kind of um, lumps that, that uh, um, then scab over and heal so over a period of a few weeks. How do you catch it? It's thought to be, it's a respiratory virus, so it's in the respiratory tract, and um, it's thought to be through close contact, so it could be through um, contact with scabs and um, bodily fluids, etc., but it can also be transmitted through the respiratory route. Um, certainly, in the U.S. outbreak, there were cases that were spread from you know animal to human without any direct contact. Um, and I, I you know, we know that variola, the smallpox virus, is actually highly airborne. Um, so it's likely there is some aerosol transmission as well. So the moment it's been reported in men who are sexual with men, bisexual men and the gay community, which might just be a fact that that's a very health-aware community rather than a, a truly in that community, what do you think the local epidemiology is? There is uh, um, almost all the cases are male and um, a majority are in men who have sex with men in the outbreak that, that started in the UK and then you know we had these outbreaks popping up in... Portugal and Spain and then in the US, Canada, etc. Um, there, there have been some links to super spreading events or, you know, big parties on a particular island in Spain. Um, WHO and other, other organisations are speculating that it's being sexually transmitted, but I think when you're in really close contact, it's hard to say whether it's, you know... Um, sexual contact per se or just close contact. So control... Um, so contact tracing is really important um, and cases and contacts should be isolated. Um, you can, there are effective antivirals that have been developed since eradication of smallpox. Um, there's two, uh, two or three actually. Um, and um, there's also vaccinia immune globulin, which is, um, you know, the, the, derived from the plasma of people who've had the vaccinia virus, which is a smallpox vaccine. It's a live virus vaccine with a virus called vaccinia that is also an orthopox virus. Now, I can't let you... Um, and, Sorry, go on. Yeah. And I... you can vaccinate the contacts, um, and that is protective as well. I can't let you go without talking about a paper you've just published on polio in the Ukraine. Yeah, we, uh, we've we got an epidemic observatory called EpiWatch, and we keep an eye on... Uh, the reason I've published on monkeypox is we've been watching these outbreaks since 2017 and um, really fascinated by why they were resurging so much. And same with polio. We've been watching polio globally for a while. And we, as soon as the Ukraine war broke out, we knew we knew what, what the main diseases were that were going to be a risk there, which were 
COVID for one, and then followed by measles and polio because they've had recent outbreaks of both. Um, and, you know, when you get the collapse of public health in infrastructure, mass displacement, etc., these epidemic diseases um, get worse. Um, they've got vaccine-derived polio, so that's an interesting story in that, you know, the, the WHO has been trying to eradicate polio and got really close, but um, there's a couple of hotspots in the world which until now were, you know, Nigeria, um, Pakistan and Afghanistan, but um, there's also started to be these outbreaks of vaccine-derived polio. So the, the old polio vaccine, which is used in most of the world, um, is a live polio virus that's been attenuated and it can revert to becoming um, pathogenic. We don't use that in Australia. In Australia, we use the inactivated polio virus, but that's much, much more expensive. The old one is very cheap, which is why it's used in... So when you've got low vaccination rates and you're using that old polio vaccine, you set the scene for vaccine-derived polio, basically, which is where people can get paralytic polio from a strain that's, um, you know, uh, emerged from the vaccine. And how many cases so far, just before we go? Um, they, they haven't had a lot. It's just been a couple, you know, one or two cases. But any case of polio around the world is watched very closely. So the, the risk factor is a drop in vaccination rates, which obviously there will be in the Ukraine now um, because public health services have, you know, basically stopped. Um, Rainer, we're going to have to finish it there, but thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Professor Rainer McIntyre heads the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. So a quick question for you, Norman. When did you last have a skin cancer check? Six weeks ago. Oh, such a good answer. It's more like six years in my case. And I really feel like I need to get one done based on what I'm about to talk about because a recent study has projected that melanoma incidence is going to increase by 50% in the next two decades. But the question is, who's going to treat it? The Australasian Skin Cancer Congress has been discussing just this over the weekend. And part of the conversation was cancer epidemiologist Michael Kimlin, who joins us now. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Good. So the study was published in JAMA Dermatology, as in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it's global increases in incidence. How do we know how Australia might compare to that global average? Uh, well, look, certainly those projections would hold true for us. And I think the other reassuring evidence is that there's work recently conducted at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, and they're expecting skin cancer cases in Australia to grow annually by 6% over, over the foreseeable future. So what's driving this increase? Aren't we better at preventing skin cancer than we used to be? Have slip, slop, slap taught us nothing? Yeah, look, look, we, we really are doing a great job with, with primary prevention of, of skin cancers in the community. We've got a highly educated uh, community who, who's aware of the risk factors uh, and we've got these great policies like no hat, no play within in the primary school school setting. I guess what's driving these cases is an ageing population. We're, we're going to be seeing a, a group within the population who weren't necessarily exposed to those early messages of, of Sid the Seagull in the early 1980s. So um, those folk are getting older and, and they're, they're starting to, to reach that age at which, at which skin cancers become far more prevalent within that, that age group. So it's, a, it's an effect of ageing as well. Right. So this 20-year 
progression um, projection that you've been talking about it's sort of too late for prevention in that group of people is that what you're saying yeah well, well look it's never too late and we know that that with skin cancer at any stage in life any any additional uh, prevention measure does make make a difference to your overall risk but certainly on a population level we're finding this this aging group is moving forward and and this is coming towards us and our healthcare system into the future. So the big discussion that you had during the Congress over the weekend was about whose job is it going to be to take care of all of these people. Is the answer simply training more dermatologists or are there different models of care that you've been um, toying with? Certainly, look, look, there was lots of conversation around, you know, and I think the around this issue and I think the main outcome is that it needs many shoulders to the wheel and it needs needs a, a national conversation around how we're going to address the workforce that's going to be required in order to address these incoming cases because, you know, we have a, have a workforce both within primary care and specialist care, um, certainly completely under the pump at the moment with our already saturated levels of skin cancer within our population. You know, just just a reminder, you know, it's our, it's our national cancer. It's, it's the most costly cancer that we have, skin cancer, uh, within Australia. So um, how are we going to keep our workforce, um, both primary care and specialist care, primed and, and ready to adapt to this ageing cohort that's coming into the future? So I think it's, it's more than just one. It's a uh, many shoulders to the wheel, so to speak. So primary cares, like we're talking about GPs, they're already pretty, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty. they've got a lot of, of work on their shoulders that you're asking them to put to this wheel. Like, is that a, is that a reasonable solution to this problem? Well, look, you know, typ- typically um, we find that, that most folk with concerns or issues around skin cancer tend to see um, primary care setting as, as their first port of call. Um, and... Many, many GPs have actually invested substantial amounts of time and their own money to develop their specialist skills in skin cancer practice. So um, thinking about um, giving GPs not extra work, but a way of actually recognising those those extra skills and time that they've spent developing uh, their practice into a robust accreditation system that can think can give the consumer a, a, a tick or a, a confidence, I, th- I think is something that we should uh, talk about. And briefly, when it comes to melanoma specifically, if you can get it early, it saves a lot of money as well as heartache down the track. Yeah. So, so uh, early, the evidence is very clear. Early detected melanomas have a have fantastic survival rate. Uh, close to 100%, not always, but close to 100%, um, and uh, good outcomes in the longer term. The more advanced melanomas, um, you know, we go from around about $650 to treat an early stage melanoma per annum, per patient, to up to around about $100,000 per patient per annum to treat these advanced melanomas. So certainly um, early detection uh, of those melanomas is is better economically as well. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Professor Michael Kimlin is a cancer epidemiologist at Queensland University of Technology. Aren't you glad you got that skin check, Norman? I am indeed thoroughly relieved. <laughs> well, if you're one of the 40,000 or so Australians to have a stroke each year, typically what's meant to happen is something like this. 
someone calls an ambulance, you get taken to hospital, you go to have a brain scan and a big heavy machine to figure out what kind of stroke you're having, and then you get treatment for it. And the diagnostic scan is important because while most strokes are caused by clots, about 15% are caused by a brain bleed and giving clot busting drugs in that kind of stroke can be fatal. But in stroke, time equals brain cell death. So anything that speeds up the delivery of a clot dissolving drug is saving your brain. And a pilot study in Melbourne is bringing the critical parts of stroke treatment directly to patients in a specialised ambulance called a mobile stroke unit. Neurologist Mark Parsons is one of the people leading the study, and I spoke to him earlier. Yeah, so in the traditional model of care, as you say, the ambulance has to come to the patient, take the patient to the hospital, they go through the emergency department, have a CT scan, and it's most unusual to be able to treat someone within one hour of their stroke with that traditional patient journey model of care through the hospital. But with the mobile stroke unit, by taking the CT scanner and the stroke experts to the patient, we can treat them much earlier. And in general, we save about an hour, treat one hour earlier. And and indeed, with the Melbourne stroke unit, we're treating about 20% of patients within the golden hour, the first 60 minutes after stroke, which is incredibly rare to do with the traditional model of care in hospital. What does an hour equate to in terms of someone's brain injury? That's a good question. So we did a study a few years back that showed that if you actually save one minute, if you treat one minute earlier, you actually get one extra week of disability-free life. So if you treat an hour earlier, that gives you more than a year of extra healthy life. So it makes a substantial difference. With only one mobile stroke unit out and about, how do you prioritise who gets that care? Good question. There's obviously the initial call to triple zero. And then typically with the MSU model of care, a local ambulance crew with paramedics will get to the patient first and assess them and then decide whether the MSU should attend the patient at their house. And what's in the MSU? You mentioned the CT scanner, obviously that's the big one, but then specialists as well. The CT scanner is obviously crucial, but we've got an expert stroke nurse, two paramedics, a radiographer to operate the CT. And depending on the model in the Melbourne model, there's a neurologist on board, but there are other models where the neurologist is remote via telemedicine. It's pretty impressive. You're obviously getting good results, but it's still a pretty clunky operation and it really kind of only seems to be something that's feasible to do in a big, highly populated capital city. That's right. Otherwise, it's not really cost effective because you can imagine that the ambulance itself is a special vehicle that has to be completely kitted out, the CT, and so there's an upfront cost. But then there's the operational cost of running the vehicle, the staffing, etc. So it's really only cost effective in a reasonably densely populated area, quite large cities, probably with a population of it. Well, we're not sure where the lower limit is, but it's probably at least half a million people. But obviously in places like Melbourne or Sydney, it is cost effective. But that's not ensuring that all Australians get that same very early um, care. So we're working with a group called the Australian Stroke Alliance to develop more portable imaging that's much less expensive than a CT that we could put in the back of a normal ambulance and hopefully be able to access to people with stroke both in cities and in rural and regional areas. How far away is that though? I think 
with some of the most advanced technology, which includes a type of electromagnetic imaging, which is a little bit like using microwaves to image the brain without overheating the brain, of course, and some new nanotube lightweight CT technology. I think we're probably two or three, maybe less, uh, one to two years away from testing it pre-hospital in ambulance. And maybe I think we're only about five years away from actually treating patients in the field with clot dissolving medicine with some of these new technologies. That's really exciting. The other arm to the study with the mobile stroke unit is you're also trialling a different type of stroke drug. So the standard um, proven clot dissolving therapy for ischemic stroke is called alteplase, and we've been using that for over 20 years in Australia after the original trials in the mid-90s showed that if you treat within three hours of stroke that you have substantially better outcomes by getting blood flow back to the brain and limiting the damage to the brain. But in the last 10 years or so, we've been leading the world with studies with a newer clot dissolving medicine called tenecteplase, which has quite a few advantages to alteplase in that alteplase is given over an hour with an infusion, whereas tenecteplase is a single bolus. So it looks Just like a single open- shot straight in yes, and then you're done. Yeah, correct. Looks like it opens up the block vessel more quickly than the standard treatment. We've been doing this in hospital studies for a few years, as I said, but we did this for the first time in the Melbourne Stroke Ambulance pre-hospital. So this is the first study worldwide of this clot dissolving agent in stroke before hospital. So the mobile stroke unit plus the tenecteplase as the drug that you're using, you've published results that looking really promising. What's the next step to broaden this type of treatment to the rest of Australia? As I said, we're not far away from In fact, in many hospitals, we're using the tenecteplase now in certain stroke patients. Pre-hospital, we're planning a multi-centre international study of mobile stroke units around the world with tenecteplase. There are quite a few mobile stroke units around Europe and North America and even Asia now. And we'll be having a second MSU in Melbourne soon and one on the road in Sydney within the next 12 months. So we'll be able to roll it out across the world, hopefully. That's amazing. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. No problems. Thank you. Mark Parsons is Professor of Neurology at the University of New South Wales and the University of Melbourne and a neurologist at Liverpool Hospital. But Norman, how do I know when to call an ambulance? And calling an ambulance is key here. You do not get in the car and go to the your, your GP or uh, get somebody to take you to the local um, ED. So it's called FAST. Your face goes weak on one side. Um, you can't lift your arm or your arm is weak on one side, usually on the same side as the, the face. And um, your speech, you're either not understanding speech or you can't express yourself well. And the T is for time. No time to waste. Call the ambulance, triple zero. You'll be taken absolutely seriously at hospital, even if it's a temporary stroke. So just get in there so you fast. can get treated. Yep, fast. Now, it sounds surprising But over the last few years, one of the hot areas in mental health research is the link between mental health issues and the immune system. Depression seems to be associated with an overactive immune system, perhaps causing inflammation in the brain. Schizophrenia may be associated with infections in mothers, and it's been known for many years that chronic stress, where you feel out of control of your life, can profoundly affect the brain. People have also wondered whether mental health issues are associated with immune disorders, such as ulcerative colitis and asthma. And a group at Yale University in the United States has shown that this is indeed the case. 
The question is whether there is shared genetic risk and in what direction does it work? Dr. Daniel Tiley was the lead author. The main message of our findings is that there is a significant proportion of shared genetic risk between these types of disorders. So just give us a sense of which psychiatric or mental health issue with what immune problem. The ones that feature most prominently in our results were associations between major depressive disorder, so depression, and asthma. And we also saw associations between schizophrenia and two of the inflammatory bowel disorders, that's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. One of the issues here is directionality, horse and car, chicken and egg. And if I understand Mm -hmm. the results correctly, the direction of flow of the risk seems to be mental health issue first immune disorder second. It looks as though having a mental health issue drives some abnormality in the immune system. Have I picked that up correctly? I think you do have the gist of our findings, the genetic liability for some of these psychiatric disorders, major depression and also schizophrenia, appears to increase the genetic liability for the immune-related disorder. That would be consistent with a causal effect of psychiatric disorders on immune-related disorders, or at least a partially causal effect. Does having major depression, something about having schizophrenia or psychosis, which changes the immune system, it could be smoking, it could be something else, that actually drives a risk factor for immune disease? It is entirely possible that these sort of mediating factors or confounding factors, so factors like smoking, drinking, health-related behaviors, how much sleep you're getting at night, how much physical exercise you get, you know, what's your body mass index? These are all things that could potentially mediate a relationship between one set of disorders and the other. People's lifestyles are dynamic and changing. It's challenging for studies to measure them, and we try to statistically adjust for their effect. And for the main conclusions of our paper, the relationships do appear to be statistically independent from some of these other factors that we thought could be mediating the relationship. Because even though we say it's an environmental factor like smoking, smoking behavior has a genetic a heritable component also. But as a psychiatrist, there is growing evidence that depression can trigger the immune system and cause inflammation in the body. And there's certainly growing concern that schizophrenia has an immune component itself. And I suppose what I'm I'm asking here is, does having mental health issues fire up the immune system and then produce in a genetically susceptible person the asthma or the ulcerative colitis? Our study falls a bit short of being able to demonstrate this, but in general, there is a substantial body of literature indicating that things like chronic stress, emotional distress, psychological distress can cause changes in immune signaling molecules, immune cell responses. So one possibility is that chronic stress or chronic activation of these hormonal and uh, neuroendocrine systems that respond to stress can lead to changes in the immune system that then dispose people towards immune disorders. That's one possibility. And presumably because you're just looking cross-sectionally at people at a moment in time, you can't say whether treatment of the psychiatric issue or the mental health issue affects the autoimmune or immune disorder. You know, we don't have the capacity to know whether treatment of of an underlying mental health issue would necessarily decrease the risk for developing an immune-related disorder or decrease the symptoms of an immune-related disorder that already exists. But it's a really interesting future direction for the field. So for the general public, what's the message from the research from your point of view? The most appropriate message for the general public is that when we look at genetic data, it seems to suggest that 
liability to some of these psychiatric disorders may be increasing risk for the development of certain immune-related disorders. I guess it underscores the need to re-examine preventative medicine and managing stress in ways that are healthier. I think it's important to keep in mind that these are conclusions that we're generating from population-level data. You know, they're not directly relevant to understanding the comorbidity of a psychiatric and immune-related disorder within any particular person. There are lots of convincing examples where an immune disturbance seems to cause neuropsychiatric symptoms or syndromes, and it's really important that we understand those mechanisms. But in this case, what the data suggests is on the whole, it looks like behavioral disturbance in most cases may be giving rise to immunologic disturbance. Daniel Tiley is in the Department of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine at Yale University in the United States. This has been The Health Report, and I'll see you next week. And so will I. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.